Let's open our Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and tonight we'll begin in verse 28. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28, and tonight it's our plan to, to finish this chapter and to finish the material that Paul is, uh, is teaching here on the subject of Christian marriage. In our study from Ephesians 5 on the aspect of wise living, especially with respect to the interpersonal relationship of marriage, we concluded last time with Paul using Jesus Christ as the model for marriage, especially the husband in marriage, the husband's love for his wife. Read along with me, if you will, beginning in verse 20, uh, 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her by ha having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. The point is, and that's in our study last night, and actually combining a couple of the studies that went before that, the point is that all the things that Paul mentions in verses 26 and 27, and we call that a soteriological parenthesis. This is a lot about our salvation in these two verses. The point is that all this is possible because Christ gave himself for us when we were far from lovable. Now, that's critical. I can't emphasize that enough with regard to, to function in marriage. Christ gave himself for us when we were far from lovable. And this is presented by the Apostle Paul under the ministry of the Holy Spirit as the model for the husband's function as a sacrificial leader in the home. Again, this is critical. If we don't get this, we'll never get what Paul's doing in this particular portion of God's Word. If Christ could love sacrificially those who were his enemies, those who were antagonistic toward him, we might could even say those who hated him, should not husbands love their wives who hopefully don't fall into the category of enemies? And I know sometimes that, that, that we may think that. But there's a big difference between the relationship between a husband and wife and the relationship between Christ and the church or those who he came to die for. Remember, we were his enemies. We were antagonistic toward him. It might could even be said that we were hateful toward him. And if God can love us that much, if Christ can love us that much, it doesn't seem to me that God is asking a lot for husbands to love their wives in a sacrificial way, with that being the model. Now, I do want to make a couple notes as we finish out this material on marriage, and, and this is something that I probably could have done up front instead of on the last lesson, but let me do it now. Many, if not most marriages in the culture of the first century were arranged marriage, much different from our culture here in this country. Even today, in many cultures, many places around the world, that's still the practice. I have a very good friend, and some of you know him, whose marriage was arranged. He lives in one of those cultures where, marriage, where arranged marriages are the norm, and his marriage was arranged. And he had long talks with me about the difficulties of that kind of marriage, the difficulties of coming to, to love someone after you're married in the romantic sense. 
Now, that's something that our culture, we, we do it the other way around. We hopefully have a romantic love, and then we get married. But in many, many cultures, they get married, the, the marriages are arranged by the parents, and then they have to fall in love. That's different. And I have to point out to you that that's the culture that Paul's writing in. You see, that's the perspective that he's writing from, not the type of marriages that we have in this culture here today and even in Western Europe. He's writing from an Asian culture. And, and my, my friend told me of the difficulties right up, right up front. These two people didn't even know each other. And you can imagine the difficulties that they faced, and not just them, but all people in that culture. And again, that's the perspective that Paul's writing from. See, if, if we superimpose our perspective on this passage, we're going to miss the thrust of what Paul's saying here. My friend had to learn to love his wife. Now, you can imagine the difficulties there, and all jokes aside, even from the wife's perspective, because they end up having to consummate physically the marriage before there's any romantic love. Okay, and that's totally different from the perspective that we have. But what I'm saying is the culture that Paul is writing in and to, in terms of its original audience, was much more like the culture that I just described to you than ours. Now, this is going to mean a lot as we conclude this lesson tonight. But in, in, these, in these marriages, people have to learn to love or grow to love someone romantically. But here... Paul is saying that they're there to love their wife. And remember, in this sense, they may have just met her like Christ loved the church. Now, now, are you seeing some more intensity added to this? And, of course, in, in my friend's case, they grew into a relationship of romantic love. And they're, they're fine now, but for years, the first several years of their marriage, it was extremely difficult. So that's the culture that we need to be thinking about as we put an overlay on this passage. That's the culture that Paul's writing to. Not our culture where we love them first or have a romantic love for them first and then have to exercise this unconditional love. In the culture he's writing to, they have to exercise unconditional love first and then grow into a romantic love. So this passage is written in the context of a, may I use the term, willed love something that we choose to do, a willed love. As, we, as we've seen previously in last week's lesson and even before, just because it's a willed love doesn't mean that it's emotionless, but it doesn't mean that it's pure emotion. The volition is involved, and I hope that helps you to see that. In the cultural context of this passage, willed love, love that, that my... That the attitude of choice that I make toward the mate preceded romantic love in almost every case. Now, there may have been some, some exceptions to that, but that wasn't the norm. The norm was you, you, the marriage was arranged, and in, under this context, the husband is supposed to love his wife like Christ loved the church, and he may have just met her. He may not have wanted to marry her, and that happens a lot. We've, we're seeing some of that. On Sunday mornings, when we get, we will when we get back to our study of Genesis. Now, this is so significant because in our culture, and I'm talking about the American culture now, in the Western European culture, in our culture, many times Christians fall out of romantic love, and then they turn 
when they fall out of romantic love, even temporarily, but especially if, it's, if it begins temporarily and lasts over weeks or months or perhaps years, they turn to divorce as the solution to that problem. That, that, that would have caused Paul to scratch his head. That's not the context that he's ministering in. Paul is not writing under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This isn't Paul's opinion. The reason I have to say that is that if some, I'll call them liberal theologians, they're not liberal politically, but they're liberal theologically, that means that they don't really hold to the scriptures as the final authority like they should. And that's being kind, I think. But Paul is not writing under the ministry of the Holy Spirit from the cultural perspective of romantic love preceding marriage. It's the other way around. Now, hopefully, this is helpful, especially for the men that are listening to this message, either live or on the CD at a later time. I hope that this is helpful. Because under the context, this willed love preceded the romantic love. Again, I should have said that right up front. I should have said that in the very first lesson. But I hope that it's not too late, and I hope that this will help you. So I say a special message to the husbands in this regard. But the point is equally true of wives. The message here is not that the wife should respect and submit to her husband out of romantic love but from a motivation of obedience to Christ. In other words, a willed idea. So in the same way, wives can't say, I don't love him anymore, therefore I'm not going to submit to his leadership anymore, therefore, as we're going to see tonight, I'm not going to respect him anymore. That doesn't cut it. Now, if you talk to divorce attorneys here in the United States, they're going to tell you they hear that every day, all day. Well, what's the deal? Well, we've fallen out of love irreconcilable differences, whatever that means. But that's just a basket case. So we need to be very careful with this. The first responsibility, and this is a bit of a summary statement for all these lessons on marriage, but the first responsibility of both husband and wife is to Christ. The first responsibility of both husband and wife is to Christ. Romantic love is an added bonus in the context of this passage in the first century. And this is different. That's why we have to be very careful of context. Romantic love is an added bonus. It's not the basis. It's a bonus. It's not the basis for harmony in marriage. Now, that's different from almost every book you're going to see on the shelf down at Barnes & Noble on marriage. And they've got a big section down there. And most of those books are trying to teach you different techniques and, and things that you can do to build up the romance in your marriage. And I'm all for that. Believe me, I'm all for that. But that's not what this passage is talking about. This passage is talking about having a marriage that's harmonious in spite of the fact that the romantic index may not be as high as you want it to be at any particular moment. You know, you can still have a God-honoring marriage, even in that sense. We need to be very careful with this. Can you see now why Paul was so adamant about the biblical command not to be unequally yoked? You see? Because if, if you're unequally yoked, you, you've got one party in the transaction that really doesn't care about their responsibility to Christ. And then it's going to be very difficult to maintain a strictly romantic, and listen, we all want to do it, 
but to maintain a strictly romantic motivation in marriage. There has to be a motivation of integrity in marriage and honesty in marriage and love for Christ. There's got to be a vertical love first before there can be a legitimate horizontal love. And so many Christians today, Christians, I'm not talking about non-Christians, so many Christians today are trying to maintain their marriage strictly horizontally, leaving God out of the equation. So many. Now, not necessarily in our context, because most of you have been in the Word for years and years, maybe decades of your life. And so this is not the first time you've ever heard this. But if you were to spend some time around some people that are late teens, early 20s, even into early 30s, you're going to see that some of the things that this passage says are abhorrent to these people. Just abhorrent. Want no part of that. If we want to have successful relationships, and and this passage is speaking of that, marriages, families, and then in the workplace, we need to do it God's way. Now, verse 25. Verse 25 begins this way. Just as, or husbands love your wife, just as Christ also loved the church. Then we skip down to verse 28 where where we find ourselves tonight, and this thought is picked up. What Paul has done is he's had a soteriological parenthesis that has taken place between these uh, two verses. So don't, I, I say this so that we don't lose our track. In Paul's brilliance, sometimes he goes off on parenthetical statements, and we don't want to lose track of where he was. Verse, so what we're doing is going from verse 25 now to verse 28 with this soteriological parenthesis in the middle to try to help make his point. So just as, verse 25, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for us, for her, then in verse 28, so also husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Now, with the perspective that I gave you a moment ago, does that help a little bit to see that in the culture that he's writing to, there may have been no romantic love. There may very well could have been no romantic love, but they're still commanded to love the wife like Christ loved the church. So husbands also ought to love their own wives. Now, think about that for a moment. Look all the way back to verse 22. And this is a shame that we even have to point this out. But in, in verse 22, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, or as unto the Lord. Remember we pointed out there that there are some cultists that would believe that women are supposed to submit to all men, or at least men within, within the hierarchy of a particular cult. And we've seen that happen tragically with tragic results many times in our own culture. But the wives are not supposed to subject themselves or submit to all men. Actually, the the passage says women and men, but those were the terms that were used for husbands and wives at the time. They're only supposed to submit themselves to their own husbands. Now, in, in verse 28, husbands also ought to love their own wives. Husband has leadership responsibility over one wife, not over a whole group of wives. So if if the Bible was accurately, carefully followed, we wouldn't have these. We we wouldn't have these kind of issues come up with regard to these cults. Husbands also ought. Now this tells us that it's not a sure thing. Some people will repeat in the course of teaching the Christian way of life, that as we grow to a certain point, certain things are automatically going to happen. These people 
were would overemphasize the sovereignty of God and underemphasize the responsibility of man. There needs to be a balance between those two things. Here this passage is very clear that this is the, the behavior that is expected by God of husbands. doesn't necessarily happen that way. Believe me, from a practical standpoint, I can guarantee you it doesn't always happen this way. But there's a new idea brought in here, and that is that husbands should love their own wives, ought to love their own wives, as they do their own bodies. Then the text goes on to say, he who loves his own wife loves himself. Since in marriage, two people become one flesh. That's Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. We're going to get back to that in a minute. In a figurative sense, a man's wife becomes part of his own body when they become married. Consequently, the husband should love her and treat her as he does his own body. Now think about this for a minute. Think, think carefully. By definition, this takes selfishness out of the equation, doesn't it? Because if one is loving their wife as he does his own body, then there's no room for selfishness. By definition, it's impossible to have selfishness because it, it wouldn't work that way. So selfishness is no part of sacrificial leading. But Paul goes on, and he, and he makes an explanation here. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Now what we, we, we're going to have to add here, because in, in, our, in our culture today, there are people that do hate their own flesh, but that's not normal in a healthy individual who's healthy psychologically. There are people that do it. But no one who is psychologically healthy will hate his own body. I could also say no one who's spiritually healthy will hate his own body. In fact, if someone does hate their own body, we consider that a sign of a psychological disorder. And we would encourage that person to get help if they hate their own body. And there are many, many ways that people can hate their own body. Self-mutilation is one that's just something I don't understand at all, but sometimes people do that. But, you know, people hate their own body in other ways, too. People hate their own body by, by having no control over, for example, of what we eat or, or how we take care of it with regard to exercise. That's, that's a part of hating one's own body, too. But if we're healthy, we want to take as good a care of this temple as we possibly can. Anything less is especially self-mutilation. Self that is, if, if we know somebody that's mutilating themselves, hating their own body, wouldn't we try to get them help somewhere that's, that's not a normal person. So, so Paul is just saying, no one has ever hated his own flesh. At least no one who is normal has ever hated his own flesh. We nourish it. We cherish it. The implication is that when a husband mistreats his wife or treats her in a selfish way, he's actually mistreating himself. And that's not healthy from a psychological perspective, it's not healthy from a spiritual perspective to mistreat yourself. Now this is another one of those sober notes that needs to be made, and again, I, I might should have made this up front in the first lesson, but I want to make it tonight, and I want you to listen so very carefully. Christ is the model for leadership in marriage from the husband's perspective. We all see that, right? Husbands understand that, wives can understand that by now. Christ sacrificially gave of himself to the church. He gave everything to purchase the church's salvation. And I hope we're all agreed on the significance of that by this point. But, and this is what I want you to pay close attention to, but we should not conclude that this model 
means that husbands are required to acquiesce to every desire or every whim of the wives. In other words, husbands are not to be like beat-down parents who every time a child comes and says, give me more candy, I want to play out in the street, because you're leaving sacrificially, you say, well, that's okay. That's not what is being taught here. Christ certainly doesn't lead that way in the church, does he? No, nobody runs over Christ in the church. He leads sacrificially. He leads with love, but he leads. For the good of the church, Jesus sometimes says no. And for the good of the marriage, husbands also have to provide sacrificial but reasoned leadership, all within the sphere of love. And I hope you see that. The biblical model of a sacrificial leader in the home is not that of a henpecked, weak-kneed, spineless wimp who's led around by the nose by his wife. Now, we've all seen this, haven't we? You all know people, Christian, Christian wives and Christian husbands, where a husband has allowed the wife to do that, and it is most unattractive, most unattractive. Sometimes we'd like to say, would you get control of your wife? You know, nobody wants to be around your wife. Now, we can't do that. That's between them and the Lord. But that's not what this passage is saying either. So both husbands and wives need to understand this. And, and, and this is a very real thing, by the way. Because I do do marriage counseling. And I've had this misunderstanding with this passage. Sometimes the wife will say, well, he's got to do this. He's supposed to, he's supposed to take care of my every need. Need, yes. Need, yes. But not necessarily every whim or desire. That's where reason leadership comes in. And husbands sometimes get the idea, well, you know, that's what she wants to do. I've got to let her do that. No, you don't. Not if it's not good for her or good for the union or good for the family or whatever. This is serious business. And listen, marriages fall apart over this. So I'm not joking. We've got to be very, very careful. So we don't want unattractive Christian marriages. If Christian marriage is a testimony to a lost and dying world, and it is, then we need to be careful how we exercise this love, both willed and romantic, within the sphere of marriage. Now, back to this passage, and that's the last of the special notes that I intend to make tonight. But back to this passage, we find out that it's the responsibility of the husband, just like we nourish and cherish our own body, and this isn't like, uh, you know, the people in the gym who, who walk by and have to look in the mirror every time they, they see themselves, you know, kind of flex a little bit, you know, you know, when they comb the hair, it's going to kind of go like that. You know, we're not, we're not talking about that. That's not the loving and cherishing. But in the same way that you would take care of your body, that's how you're supposed to take care of your wife. Now, in a normal, healthy person. I, and again, some people don't take care of their bodies. Some people self-mutilate their bodies. But that's not normal. That's not what Paul's talking about. So it doesn't mean that just because you may have a psychological problem, then you can are free to then superimpose that on your wife. That's not what's being spoken of here. We're to nourish and we're to cherish, men. Nourishing involves providing security. And because of the way that God set things up all the way back in the Garden of Eden and even post-fall, generally speaking, and there are exceptions because of health concerns and other things, but generally speaking, 
it's the husband's responsibility to provide a secure environment for their wives. Women, women want that. Women have every right to deserve that. I'm talking about security from physical dangers, security as much as it is possible from financial difficulties, whatever is possible, that comes under this term nourishing. Cherishing involves protecting by watching out for and caring for someone, actually caring for them. Those are basic needs that most wives feel. So verse 30, because we are members of his body. So Christ nourishes and cherishes us because we're members of his body. So also the husband should nourish and cherish the wife because guess what? She's a part of your body. We get to a passage from the Old Testament that will further expand on that in just a moment. But I do want to say this. If you're reading the New King James right now, there will be, there may be some words added that I didn't read in verse 30. Because some manuscripts add, out of his flesh and out of his bones. Both the King James Version and the New King James Version add those words because they're using different manuscripts than many of the others are using. And the fact is that scholars disagree on whether those words should actually be in the text or not. They're not in the New American Standard. I don't believe they're in an IV. But New King James and King James, they are in there. Scholars do disagree on whether the words should be in there, which are a reference, by the way, back to Genesis 2.23. But most New Testament scholars that specialize in textual criticism, which is the field that would, that would be determined from all the manuscript evidence, what was the original text? What did it actually say? Most believe that those words were in addition to the original text and that they're not part of the original. The good thing is, as with most textual problems, it won't change the meaning of the text either way. It's just a reference back to Genesis 2.23. Some people feel like the, the particular scribe that wrote it down added that so that we would make darn sure that we knew that it was a reference back to Genesis 2.23 and 2.24. But we, um, hopefully we would recognize that even if we haven't been in Genesis for a while. Now, verse 31. Verse 31 is, of course, a quotation from Genesis 2.24. We have studied this passage, but it's been almost a year now in our study of Genesis. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Of course, there are overtones of intimacy in that verse, but there's more than just, we, we can't just simply say that that's all that that's talking about. Paul is using this to back up his point that, that the woman actually has become part of, in a, in a, I don't want to use the word mystical, but in a supernatural way, part of the husband himself. And so Paul uses this verse in verse 31 to make his point and to back that up. Alan Ross, speaking of this passage in Genesis, say, wrote these words. He said, God has prepared human beings, male and female, with a spiritual capacity and communal assistance to serve him and to keep his commands so that they might live and enjoy the bounty of his creation. Think back to Genesis 2 now, just for a moment. You remember why Eve was created in the first place? Eve was created to correspond to Adam, to fill up needs that Adam had, and to help him in the context of Genesis 2, to help Adam worship the Lord in a more effective way. Now, what happened? She did anything but that. She didn't fulfill the function for which she was created. In fact, 
she she fell, and, and rather than help him worship in a more effective way, she did she did exactly the opposite, and she she hurt him. Now that wasn't the way it was supposed to be. This whole one flesh idea means that you should have husband and wife as they walk through this life, that their very testimony and their very lives are a, a testimony to the love of God and, and the righteousness of God, but also as the two come together, it makes their worship better. That's the way it's supposed to be. Again, do you see why God prohibited unions between the believer and non-believer? And, uh, normally, the results of those kind of unions are not positive. Sometimes people can make it because of the overwhelming integrity of one party or the other, but that's not the way it's supposed to be, and it is a problem. Now, as we've noted here in Genesis, and I'm going to note it here too, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. And that, in context of this, man is the Hebrew word that indicates a male. Wife is female. So, and again, it's, it's a shame that this even has to be said in the culture, but we have to say it. God instituted marriage. He invented marriage. It's, it's something by his design, and it's between a man and a woman. I don't care what culture decides it ought to be between. It's between a man and a woman, and that should be the view of a Christian. Christians shouldn't take the view that, it, you know, all bets are off, whatever you want. Uh, marriage was supposed to be between Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, and you've heard that before. <laughs> The way God prescribed it. And if we want to succeed as a nation, we better get back to biblical prescription. Now, verse 32, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. This is not the first time that Paul has used this term, mystery, or mysterion. If that's the, those are the Greek letters in, in black at the top, M-U-S-T-E-R-I-O-N. This is an E. That's an R. The one that looks like a P is an R. Mysterion. And this term deserves a, a little bit of attention here as we see it come up again in, Genesis, in Ephesians chapter 5. Harold Honer writes this. Biblically, a mystery is, and I quote him now, something, something that was hidden in God which humans could not unravel by their own ingenuity or study but is revealed by God for all believers to understand. Once more. Something which was hidden in God, in which humans could not unravel by their own ingenuity or study, but is revealed by God for all believers to understand. In other words, this is not an exclusive club. Some segments of Christianity have these things that only that segment can understand. You know, they've gotten special revelation from God. No, no, that's not what this is all about. But this is something, this is something that we had to have divine revelation. We couldn't have reasoned our way to this. Earlier in Ephesians, we studied this word mystery, and we found out at that point that the mystery was that the Jews and Gentiles were fellow heirs, equal partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. That's what we found out. That was what the mystery was earlier, and that had to be revealed. Now, here the boundaries of this word mysterion, or mystery, are the same, but it refers to the nature of the relationship between Christ and the church. This is not someone somebody could have just reasoned out. We had to have this given to us. This had to be revealed to us, and it certainly was. This mystery is great. This mysterion is great. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church, meaning that just as, just as 
Christ loved the church, so also husbands should love their wives. Now, verse 33 is a summary statement. Of actually, not just the, the verses that precede, immediately precede, but it's a summary statement of all the verses from verse 22 all the way down to verse 33, this section on mutual submission or submission within marriage. Verse 33 summarizes the entire paragraph. Nevertheless, let each individual among you, now this is each individual husband, let each individual among you love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. Now that's the Greek word phobos. In some senses it means fear, but not in the sense that it's being used here. It's not healthy when a wife is afraid of her husband. That's not the sense in which Paul is using this term. But it does mean, not a superficial, but a serious respect. What the passage doesn't say, what the summary statement doesn't say, is that husbands are to love their wives if they're lovable at that particular moment. And it doesn't say that wives are to respect at least the leadership structure of the marriage only when their husband is acting in a respectable way. I kind of wish it did in some ways, it, you know, but then I, again, I don't because this is God's prescription. This is the way it's going to work the best. And you see, even in the summary statement, what Paul is telling us under the ministry of the Holy Spirit is that if you want to have a successful marriage, you're going to have to do it God's way. You try anything else, it's, it's not going to work. That may have some shadow of working, maybe some semblance of working. Maybe everybody else thinks you've got a great marriage, but you know you don't because you're not doing it God's way. Husbands are waiting for their wives to be lovable before they love them. And wives are waiting for their husbands to be good leaders before they decide to submit to their leadership. And it, be, and it, and it institutes a vicious cycle that spirals downward. Now think about what happened for a minute if you turn that around. And think what would happen if husbands did love their wives, even if they weren't lovable. The wife's going to see that. She's going to say, you know, there's something to this integrity thing. Maybe I don't like the decision he made about this or that or that other thing, but you know what? The Bible tells me to respect his, at least his leadership. The Bible doesn't tell us to respect an individual if that individual is not worthy of respect. But the position, it's kind of like, it's kind of like if the President of the United States walked in this room, I don't care who the President of the United States is, whether you like him or not, I would be extremely disappointed if everybody in this room did not stand up. That is what Americans do when a president enters the room. Doesn't matter who is occupying the office, but it's the leadership structure of that office. Then you can vote for a different person next time if you want to vote for a different person, but I hope that we would have that respect. Or anybody that has, you know, within our culture has that kind of standing. So we need to do it God's way. The successful development of the marriage relationship requires believers who, in the context of this passage, who are filled by means of the Holy Spirit with all the fullness of God. Remember, we studied that first because can you see now that this cannot be done just with human energy? You see now this is going to be something divine before this happens? So the successful development of the marriage relationship requires believers filled up by means of the Holy Spirit with all the fullness of God who are generally concerned with each other or for each other and have a, a desire to glorify God with their lives. See, if you have two people 
that whose primary goal is to glorify God and who has a, as a parallel goal has a legitimate concern for the other person, that's going to be a marriage that's going to end up succeeding, even if there are times of disagreement. And there will always be. If you come to me and say, I have never, ever had a disagreement with my wife, I'm going to go to your wife and ask what drugs you've been taking. <laughs> you know, it's just not, it's not the way it is. Paul wouldn't take so much time with this if it wasn't an issue. The primary goal in marriage, the primary goal in marriage is not to please oneself. But to see the purposes of God work in and through each partner, individually and corporately. That's the primary goal. The primary goal in marriage ought to be to glorify God. Now, to have fun is a great thing. To have a great romance is a great thing. And it's something that all of us want deeply. But if that becomes the primary goal, as soon as that's gone, you're going to be down at the divorce attorney's office. And unfortunately, Christians do that at almost the same rate the non-Christians do. And that is no public testimony. It's sad. And I know the number bounces, you know, from one decade to the next, or maybe a little more, a little less, but it's right around that same number. Now, having a God-honoring marriage is not always easy. The Bible recognizes that. It's not always easy, but it's possible. It's possible when both parties, both parties, both parties accept God's standard and God's prescription for the institution of marriage. The enemy, Satan, knows very well the damage that he can cause by tempting both husband and wife to establish their own standards for this divine institution. To say, I know that's what the Bible says, but that phrase should never come out of a, of a believer's mouth. I know that's what the Bible says, and I intend to work very hard on doing that under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but not but. We must be ever careful not to fall into this temptation of setting our own standard for marriage. Marriage, when, when done God's way, can be beautiful and it can be fulfilling. When lived out according to the standards of this world, as opposed to the divine standards, marriage can be miserable. No matter where you find yourself at the present time with reference to your own marriage or a new commitment to live consistently in accordance with the divine plan will yield positive results, no matter where you're at. If you've got a great marriage, you can have a better one. If you're struggling right now, it can be good and then move better or even move to great. You know, the bottom line, it does seem to me, is that it's up to us. We decide, are we going to live out our marriages in accordance with the divine standard, or are we going to live them out in accordance with some standard that we borrow from the world or some that we manufacture ourselves? If we live it according to the divine standard, it's going to be great, one way or another. But if we live it according to the standard of this world, it's not going to work. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chapter, this portion of this chapter, with regard to interpersonal relationships and wise living, and we thank you that you have outlined what wise living would look like in the sphere of marriage. I do pray for each one here who is in that institution that each, each male and female, both would 
would look to you. We would live our lives with our spouses in light of your revelation, in light of a desire to truly please you. We would, as husbands, love our wives like Christ loved the church, sacrificially, humbly leading the home. And, and those who are wives would, would respect their husbands and that they would submit to the leadership of their husbands, not necessarily because their husbands are fantastic leaders, but because that's the prescription that you've given them, as unto the Lord. We know this is not easy, so we pray that the Holy Spirit would help us. We can't do it without his help. In fact, we can't have any God-honoring interpersonal relationship, whether it's marriage or it's family or anything else without your help. So we pray for it tonight. And may you be glorified by our marriages. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name.